I'll invite you to turn with me once again to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 22 today. We were going to go all the way to 29, but then um, now we're not. So uh, we're just going to go to 22. So we're going to begin reading, though, uh, from verse 7, and we'll read right through to the end. So Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In these verses... The Bible is teaching us the Bible. And the Apostle Paul is writing these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he is teaching us how to understand the gospel by explaining to us 
the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures. And we are being instructed here that God has always had one plan of redemption. He is explaining, Paul is, how it is that justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, has always been the way. And how it is that Old Testament saints like Abraham were looking forward to the coming of Christ by believing the promise of that coming individual, that coming offspring. So that repeated use of this word, the promise, the promise. They're looking forward to the fulfillment of that promise. And as we come into verse 19 today, Paul is in the midst of explaining how the Mosaic Covenant fits into that plan. Because it might seem like Exodus 20, where the law is thundered from Sinai and the people gather, it might seem like that Mosaic Covenant changes the plan a little bit. It might seem like it upsets justification by faith alone, uh, seems to change the rules, perhaps, of how one relates to God. After all, it is a legal law covenant. It is there demanding obedience and promising certain blessings upon obedience, and then it's also promising certain curses upon disobedience. And of course, as Paul is writing to the Galatian churches, his opponents, the ones he's rebuking, are the, ultimately the Judaizers. And they think that the Mosaic Covenant is a means of attaining righteousness, of attaining justification. They argue that it's not by faith alone. Rather, it is by a combination of believing in Jesus, faith, and your obedience to keeping the law of Moses. And so Paul is countering all of this with correct Old Testament teaching in this section. So he has already shown us, we've already seen, that God has uh, promised, that God promised that through one of Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Abraham himself, in verse 6, we're told, was justified by believing that promise. And this offspring, who would come and bless every nation of the earth, we're told explicitly is, of course, Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again to save all who believe in him from the judgment that we deserve for our sins. That is the offspring, ultimately, that was promised to Abraham. Verse 16 identifies this person as Christ. And so the blessing, the inheritance of life, eternal life, is a promise that God has made that is received by faith. Uh, just as it was for Abraham, so it is now and so it has always been that anyone who stands right with God, justified, has done so through faith, not works. And so the law of Moses, as we think about Sinai and the covenant that is struck there between God and Israel, it might seem to present a problem to this argument that one is and always has been justified by faith. Again, the Judaizers think that this law is inserted in Exodus 20 and beyond as a means of, 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 in, in, of obtaining the inheritance but this is explicitly what Paul is denying. He says the law which came 430 years after the promise to Abraham 
does not cancel out the promise. It doesn't annul the promise. It doesn't change the terms of the agreement such that while Abraham may have been justified by faith, but now the rest of Israel, you're going to have to be justified by your works of the law. So then this, I think, logical question, this question that Paul needs to answer and address that we need to be able to answer is what then is the purpose of the Mosaic law? What is the purpose of that covenant? If justification was by faith prior to the Mosaic covenant, and it doesn't change with the coming of that covenant and all these commands that are given, then what is it about? Why is it there? What is it for? What is its purpose? And this is what Paul addresses in these, well, he has been addressing it, and he continues to address it in our text this afternoon, and we'll continue into next week as well. So if I would summarize, try to summarize what Paul is saying here, here's what I think his answer is. In God's one plan to save a people in Christ, the Mosaic Covenant was designed to be a temporary covenant that would provide the context in which the Messiah would come and would prepare people to see the absolute need for justification by faith alone in the Messiah. So that's a summary of today's sermon. We're just going to walk through that uh, the rest of our time as we look at this role of the Mosaic Covenant in God's plan of redemption. So in Scripture, we have different types of texts, different types of, of verses. There are some that we read and they're just uh, very obviously very practical right away and perhaps very obviously comforting uh, and, and, and practical. So uh, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Um, that, that is pretty clear. That doesn't require an hour of it could, but it wouldn't necessarily require an hour of explanation in order to glean from that help, that reminder that fretting is of, of useless is useless and tends toward evil. Uh, we can be encouraged, uh, maybe rebuked, and uh, and even comforted by that text. It's pretty obviously practical. There are other texts that are less obviously practical, but that offer us a chance to step back. And just see God's wisdom. And then respond to that wisdom with faith, with worship, with thankfulness and gratitude. And that, that's how I'd like us to come at this text. As we try to understand what Paul's saying here about how the law of Moses fits into God's plan of redemption. That we might see that, that unified plan of God maybe with a, a little more clarity and then just obviously trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and worship God and be thankful to God for the good news of the gospel and, and praise him for his wisdom as this is his plan, his good news. So uh, let's begin. In, in God's one plan to save a people in Christ, the Mosaic Covenant was designed to be a temporary covenant. So that's the first point designed to be a temporary covenant. Again, the Judaizers think the Mosaic covenant is essential to salvation. In Acts chapter 15, we see something of the argument, we must command the Gentiles in order to be saved, they must keep the law of Moses. That's the argument. It's essential. 
But Paul is saying, in fact, it's so far from essential to one's justification. It has, in fact, served its purpose now as a covenant and is now no longer in force. And moreover, he is saying here that this was always God's plan. This was not a change of mind that God had when we get to the New Testament. It was always God's plan. And so the the temporary nature of the Mosaic Covenant, I think, is all over this chapter. Um, But but let's look again at verse 19. It says, uh, Paul asks, why then the law? Again, he's referring here to this The coming of the Mosaic Covenant established on Mount Sinai between God and Israel, which includes the giving of the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God that were written on stone with the finger of God, but also includes many other commands, as we see in the subsequent chapters as well, which governed Israel as a nation and their collective life in the land of Canaan. And so he's asking, if obedience to any of that doesn't help in justification, what's the purpose of it? And he begins his answer, why then the law, saying it was added because of transgressions. So just hold on to that. We'll come back to that phrase in a moment. But he says it was added because of transgressions. And then he adds, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Paul is saying that once Christ came, that covenant had served its purpose. So just notice its temporary nature with that word until, until such time as the offspring should come. It was in place for a certain amount of time. It was added with an end point in view. It was always to lead to something and then give way to something greater, namely the coming of the promised offspring. Again, this this temporary nature of the Mosaic Covenant is seen throughout this section, including frequent use, if you're looking at the ESV, of this word until. So we're going to cover verses 23 to 29 next week, Lord willing. Uh, But uh, just look down, if you would, at, at verse 23. It says, Now before faith came, and I think what he means by faith is the, the new covenant, the coming of Christ. We'll, we'll get to that next week. But before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, which is that Mosaic covenant. Paul is showing us that in God's overarching purpose and plan, this Mosaic covenant was always meant to be a temporary one that would give way with the coming of the offspring, the coming of Christ. And the reason I stress this and draw attention to this is that there are many people who miss this, who read their Bibles as if the New Testament is some sort of intrusion into God's main plan with Israel. There are those who who understand the present church age as an unforeseen thing in the Old Testament. There are those uh, who who teach it this way. Um, There are, I've been been in conversation with friends uh, who are dispensationalists who do argue this way, and there are some who do, who say that, uh, that they view the church age as kind of a bracket on God's otherwise sort of main plan with Israel. 
in the rapture, the church will be out of the way and God will resume sort of that main plan that he had with the people of Israel. I've heard, been told even that, uh, um, and these are not people who are quacks and just way out there, um, uh, Bible-believing Christians, but I think misunderstanding the point here, but saying that, uh, that, that this present church age is a parenthesis, a bracket, and it's not something that was uh, foreseen in the Old Testament. And I think this is directly contradicted here by what Paul is saying and by the other New Testament writers. The whole of it is leading towards the coming of Christ and the building of one new man in Christ Jesus made up of both Jew and Gentile alike. We'll see that even more next week as we get to the end here into verses 28 and 29. If we let the New Testament instruct us, let the Bible teach us about the Bible, then I think we will see that this is the case. That the Old Covenant was always driving towards something greater, intended by God to be temporary, never meant to be the main thing. So it's temporary. And God's one plan to save a people in Christ, the Mosaic Covenant, was designed to be a temporary covenant. And then secondly, that would provide the context in which the Messiah would come. So this is one of its purposes, was to establish the people out of which the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come. So again, if you think back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, I feel like I'm referring to that verse a lot. Um, but uh, that's where we find the, the first announcement of the gospel, a promise of a seed of the woman that would come and crush the head of the serpent and so reverse the curse of sin. And then with Abraham, God promised that that individual offspring would come from among his many offspring. But if that individual didn't come for another several hundred years or a thousand years or two thousand years, how easily we might lose track of those descendants of Abraham. Where would we look if they end up spreading out and they're all over? If you're waiting and looking for this, where would you even begin to look? And so at Sinai, you have, again, many offspring of Abraham, the people of Israel gathered, and God covenants with them at Mount Sinai. And so we know the Messiah is going to come from those circumcised and who are under the Mosaic Covenant. It's not going to come, clearly not, from Ishmael's line nor from Esau's line, though both of those men were also circumcised, physical descendants of Abraham. It's going to come from this people that is in covenant with God. Again, what are we told here in this text? Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It's temporary until such time as the offspring should come from this group of people. And the coming of that offspring marks the passing then of the Mosaic law as a covenant. It has served its purpose. In verse 24, if you look down, it says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now it no longer serves in that way. 
And so this covenant arrangement between God and Israel, it is not contrary to the promise God made to Abraham at all, but rather it serves God's purpose. And so when we get to the New Testament, there are those who obviously, we think of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, and they are very much missing the point. But there are those in the New Testament who are looking and waiting for this offspring to come. They know it's going to be from among us, from among the covenant people of God, the Jews. And so I think of a man like Simeon in Luke chapter 2. He is waiting, and in fact, the Spirit had told him that he would see this individual offspring. And then when the parents of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, take him to the temple, you remember uh, he, he, uh, he was handed the baby, he took the baby, Jesus, in his arms, and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Right? Even notice, he understands this is a, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, to the whole world. This is about more than just us here now. Simeon understands that, and yet he also adds, and it's for glory to your people Israel. It was an immense privilege for the people of Israel to have been in covenant with God and to have the Messiah, the Savior of the world, come from them and to come first to them before going out to the rest of the world. In God's plan to save a people in Christ, the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant, is not just that the Messiah would come from those who were in that covenant with God, but the Mosaic Covenant itself would prepare people to see the absolute need for justification by faith in the Messiah. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time. So, so far we've been seeing it's, it's a covenant, temp, uh, a temporary covenant, and then it marked out the people from whom the Christ would come. But really, we still haven't addressed the main question of what to make of the fact that this Mosaic covenant is a legal one, that is commanding obedience uh, in order to receive certain blessings and then announcing curses for failure. How does this fit with this promise to justify by faith? How does this fit if this law is not, in fact, a pathway to obtaining a righteous standing with God? Paul is showing us that the Mosaic Covenant had a purpose of preparing people for the Messiah. And he shows this by focusing on the fact that the covenant revealed the utter sinfulness of man, thus showing the absolute need for justification by faith in the promised offspring. It, should, it actually removes any thought that we could be justified by works of the law. So again, look at verse 19. Why, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Paul says it was added because of or on account of transgressions, sins. Now that statement in and of itself is a little bit vague. 
Uh, Is it because of mankind's sin in general? Is it because of Abraham's offspring's sin specifically? Uh, It could mean that the people sinned on a particular occasion, or it could mean that it's because the people were, were sinners in an ongoing sense. Could be that he wanted to teach them about sin. So it's a little bit vague there, but Paul does go on in the rest of these verses, I think, to to explain more clearly what he means by this phrase, it was added because of sin, because of transgressions. And so I think there emerges here really two meanings to this, two, two main senses to this idea of it being added because of transgressions. The first is that the covenant serves, the Mosaic covenant serves to restrain sin in the people of Israel. I think this is partly what is meant by the repeated use of this term imprisoned or confining the Jews. In verses 22 and 23, we see that. So I think what this is suggesting is that if it weren't for this covenant, Abraham's offspring, the people of Israel, they would break out into all manner of paganism and become indistinguishable from the Gentile nations around them. And so there's a a necessary separation and imprisonment that's sort of forced upon them by this covenant. It keeps them distinct from the rest of the world, from the rest of uh, the sinful nations that God permitted to wander from him. And so if you think of the prophets that went to Israel and, of course, the law itself and and, and the chastisements that were brought upon the people of Israel and God's judgments upon them, it kept the nation from just full-on running off into endless paganism. And even when he would send judgments upon them, he would, he would then mercifully bring them back. And so we see this kind of cycle throughout the Old Testament of the people sin and they start to act like their pagan Gentile neighbors and then God uh, sends judgment upon them and, and raises up a leader to bring them back and they're restored and then... The cycle continues again, and and even when God sends them off into exile, eventually he promises that he'll bring some of them back, a remnant he'll even uh, bring back. So all of this is is part of this confinement and imprisonment under sin. And so I think we'll look maybe a little more at that aspect perhaps next week when we get to verses 23 and and on. But the second meaning, I think, and, and sense to Uh, it was added because of transgressions. Is that this phrase means that the Sinai covenant was put in place to reveal the true extent of human sinfulness. This is clearly part of its purpose. So in verse 19, it says it was added because of transgressions. And then there's this statement clarifying it. It says, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So, Again, as we've already seen, this addition of this covenant was temporary because of transgressions until this offspring would come. And then the phrase, because of transgressions, is further clarified at the end of verse 19 and into verse 20 with a phrase that, when I read this, it sort of seems a bit out of place. And, and, and uh, initially, I'm, I, I'm not sure what to do with it. But it says, and it, the law, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. When I'm reading the flow of this chapter, that 
sec, that part just kind of stops me and sort of interrupts the flow. It seems to, to me. So that's my problem. I've got to figure out what's doing there. It's not the words problem. Um, but I would suggest that the English Standard Version, as I'm reading from it, is somewhat unhelpful in how it presents this. So without getting uh, too technical, the, the main statement in verse 19 is that it, that is the law, was added because of transgressions, and then it's modified by two phrases. The first is, until the offspring should come, which we've already looked at, and the second phrase that modifies it is, having been put in place through angels by an intermediary. So, so in the ESV, the word and there, where it says, and it was put in place, that, that's not in the Greek text, and um, I think its addition confuses what's going on here a little bit. The NASB is one translation uh, that I think translates this in a more helpful manner. So I'm not just making stuff up. So this phrase about being this covenant being put in place by intermediaries is, is, is modifying, explaining a little further what he means when he says it was added because of transgressions. So this talk of how the covenant was implemented as part of the explanation of the fact that God added the covenant because of transgressions. So here's what I, I think he, he is saying by this, and meaning by this. There is a contrast here between the way in which God gave the promise to Abraham and the way in which God made the covenant with Israel at Sinai. With Abraham, God just came to Abraham and declared the promise to bless the nations of the earth through Abraham's offspring. Uh, there's no other mediator present throughout that. Uh, God just draws near in grace and in mercy and makes a promise to Abraham and then confirms it to him with that kind of strange covenant ceremony we mentioned last week from Genesis chapter 15, where the fire pot passes through the parts of the animals. Uh, and, and in so doing, as we saw last time, God was swearing by an oath that he most assuredly and certainly would keep the promise that he was making to Abraham. And that was there, not because God may or may not keep his promises, but to reassure Abraham, the recipient of the promise. In contrast, think of Mount Sinai at Exodus chapter 20. There we have loud thunder, fire, the mountain is smoking. And the people were warned not to draw too close the people were warned not to touch the mountain or they would die. There was terror, terror among the people. They cried out and asked Moses, you talk to us, don't let God talk to us or we're all going to die if he speaks to us. And so they had Moses standing in the gap, standing in between, mediating between God and the people of Israel. Paul also mentions angels here as being part of that mediation, which is picking up, I think, on Deuteronomy 33.2, which mentions, mentions 10,000 of holy ones that were present at Sinai. Uh, Acts 7.53 and Hebrews 2, verse 2, also mention angels being present there at Sinai. In fact, Hebrews says that the message was declared by angels. So all of this is to say that even as God drew near to the people of Israel, to covenant with them at Sinai, even the way in which that covenant was struck with the presence of mediators and 
all the thundering and, and, and fire and smoke and all of that revealed that there was indeed a vast, vast gulf between God and the people of Israel. And even that right there, how the covenant was entered into, reveals the sinfulness of the people. It reveals that God was holy, standing far off. He was the offended party even. Not approachable by just any old means and just any old person. There's a a gulf here. And so the giving of the law through angels by Moses did not remove that barrier between God and man. It did not leave the people justified. In fact, in the Mosaic Covenant, the mediation continued through Moses and then through the priestly system. A mediation that never really dealt ultimately with the problem of sin on an internal level, but only in external matters, offering purification of the flesh, as Hebrews 9 puts it. And so there is this continual need to continually offer sacrifices for sin. This is part of what the book of Hebrews teaches us and tells us. The priest's job under the Old Covenant was never done because sins were never actually satisfied, finally and forever, under that covenant. Verse 20 says, Now an intermediary, and that word could be translated as mediator, A mediator implies more than one, but God is one. Uh, This verse is is a bit tricky. It's taken a number of different ways by different uh, um, interpreters. The first part is saying that a mediator is not a mediator of only one party. A mediator is one who stands between at least two different parties. And when it says that God is one, I think what it is saying is that God is one of those parties. So I think a lot of people take the statement God is one um, to be a reference to um, God's undivided essence. That the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they'll say that this is inserted here um, to say that um, God is, does not have two ways of saving, one for Abraham, and then he's inserting the law here, another way of saving for, for, for Moses. He, he argues this way from God's oneness uh, to the fact that he saves in one way all peoples of the earth who are saved in Romans chapter 3. You can see that in, in verse 30. I certainly think it's true that God is one and he's undivided in his, in his essence. He's not yes and no at the same time. But I don't think that that's what this is saying here. I think that it is saying simply that a mediator does not mediate for one person, but between multiple parties, and God is one of those parties. And at Sinai, he is clearly one of the parties, and he is the offended party. Again, the one standing at a distance which reveals the sinfulness of the people. And so what Paul is saying is that the law is added because of transgressions until Christ should come, and this transgression, this sin, is evident in the necessity of mediators, this distance between God and his people. 
This is a lesson that the covenant gives from the outset, revealing to us the sinfulness of even the people of Israel. So verse 21 says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? His answer is certainly not. So regardless of how we understand verse 20, verse 21 has a very clear statement of the unity of God's plan. The coming of the law covenant was by no means against or contrary to the promises God made to Abraham, which were received by faith. And then he gives this further explanation of why it is that the two are not at odds, the promise and then the law. He says, for if a law had been added or given, sorry, that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So Paul has made it clear already in Galatians and in chapter 3 that law-keeping leaves one cursed because we cannot keep the law. Verse 10 says that. It is no pathway to life. If it was a pathway to eternal life, then it would be true that righteousness is by the law. But it cannot and does not impart life. And this was never the intention. This is what he's saying. Abraham was righteous by faith. The law leaves one cursed. So he says, For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Verse 22, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is further explanation of the law being added because of transgression. And how it is that it fits with the promise God made to Abraham. The scripture, he says, by this addition of the Mosaic law, imprisoned everything under sin. It confined the Jews. The law did not bring with it life and righteousness through obedience to it, but rather leaves man condemned and imprisoned. We read from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, which speaks of it as a ministry of condemnation and of death even. It restrained the people somewhat, but it didn't bring a freedom and life with it. We see the efforts of Israel, even to keep the externals of the law. We see their efforts continually fail in the Old Testament. Never mind the internal, spiritual intent of the law. The people cannot keep it. And even where the externals of the law are kept... We see that the people were still sinful. They still fell short of God's Ten Commandments, of the law of God, the moral law of God. Some of the greatest folks of the Old Testament, we still see their sin very badly and clearly displayed. Uh, Moses was not allowed to enter the land of Canaan because of his sin. David, we are aware of, of his sin. It is obvious that Gentile nations who God had just allowed to wander off in their sin, it's obvious that they are under sin and condemnation. But this Mosaic covenant reveals that even the physical offspring of Abraham were likewise under the hold of sin. Even those who have the commands of God written by his finger on tablets of stone, even they are sinful. 
far from being part of the means of attaining righteousness, which is what the Judaizers were arguing, the Mosaic Covenant leaves no doubt that every man, woman, and child is under sin. This covenant reveals that further. It actually imprisons those in the covenant under that sin. But the ultimate purpose was not simply to leave everyone in that rather depressing state, leave everybody downcast, but rather the purpose was to affirm the necessity of what was promised to Abraham. Verse 22, but the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin. For what purpose? For what reason? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The Mosaic covenant was a subservient covenant to the promise made to Abraham. That is, it it served the greater promise, the greater purpose of God. It did this by helping to reveal the utter sinfulness of all mankind so that the promise of blessing, of forgiveness of sins, of eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Not those who do enough works of the law to measure up, but those who see that as no hope, but rather believe in Christ Jesus. And so the Sinai Covenant is certainly not contrary to the promises of God. This cannot be. Rather, it serves to reveal the need and to prepare people for the absolute necessity of the gracious blessing of God received by faith in the promised offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will continue to make this clear in verses 23 to 26, which we'll look at more next time. So we we will spend the rest of our days, however many we have, studying the scriptures and learning it better and better, coming to a fuller grasp of it. But passages like this one, they help us tremendously to cut through some of the confusion and see that God has always had one consistent plan to save a people through the Lord Jesus Christ and to do so as a gracious gift received by faith. As we read our Old Testaments and read about the people of Israel under the Old Covenant, we should in no way think that somehow that is instructing us that we are to be justified through some combination of faith and works. And we should not think that it was ever teaching that the people of Israel were seeking justification before God through faith and through their obedience to the law. Sinai reveals man's sinfulness. And it is true that within the Mosaic Covenant, God made some provisions for the sins of the people through the priesthood. But even then, the never-ending sacrifices were just further reminders 
of their sinfulness. The people yet remained in prison. Those sacrifices, again, as Hebrews 9 tells us, were cleansing the flesh, an external cleansing and forgiveness. It was not purifying the conscience of the worshiper. They were pointing ahead to the need for such a thing to happen, for the need to a once-for-all ultimate sacrifice to actually take away the sins of human beings. All of this was preparing for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not miss this lesson. Let us not place any confidence in our own flesh, but entrust ourselves entirely to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us see the one plan of God to save in the only way that there is to save, through the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done by earning a righteousness that we do not possess and cannot possibly earn, and by taking the sins of all who believe in him upon himself at the cross and dying under the wrath of God for our sins, satisfying God's justice in that way as it is poured out upon the Son of God who took human flesh to do that very thing. The offspring promised to Abraham has come. He has offered the once-for-all sacrifice that cleanses the conscience of worshipers, that forgives sins, actually secures eternal redemption. The perfect Lamb of God has offered himself for this purpose and has risen from the dead, securing the justification of all who believe in him. If there was some other way, the Son of God would not have taken flesh to himself and come and done what he did. If there was some other way of doing this. There is no other way. The Lord Jesus took upon himself not only the sins of all who believe in him today, since the time of his death and resurrection, but he also took upon himself the sins of all the Old Testament saints who were believing in God's promise to send this individual to deal with this. They did not have all of this, the promise in all of its fullness. They didn't have all of the information before them, but they believed that God was faithful and they believed that he would deal with their sins. And they were looking ahead to this. And indeed, Jesus has come and he has died for the sins of David, for the sins of Jacob, for the sins of Abraham and so on. This was always God's plan to save a people in and through Jesus Christ. And so let us Give him praise. Let us give him thanks for his wisdom 
and for his grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us most assuredly and certainly look away from ourselves and to the Lord Jesus Christ to find our hope of the forgiveness of sins. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you praise and thanks for your wisdom. We thank you for revealing to us in your word the way of reconciliation with you in and through Jesus Christ. Father, there's many things as we read your word that we find difficult and confusing and how it all fits together, understanding that what your word calls the mystery of Christ is difficult. We confess we are hindered with our, by our own sinfulness. We are hindered by our own finiteness and our own struggles to comprehend and understand. But we thank you that while there are many details that might still be difficult, There are clear statements you've given us of your unified purpose. Father, we thank you that you are indeed the God who does not and cannot and will not change. And that just as you have made clear that Abraham was justified by faith, so too All who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are justified by faith alone. We thank you that what we could not possibly do, what the law could not possibly do for us, you have done for us in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would help us to rejoice in your grace to us, to rejoice in what Christ Jesus has done for us. Father, we thank you and we give you praise and we pray that you would give us courage and strength to publish this good news to the world around us. Father, this purpose continues today to save a people in and through your son, Jesus Christ. So I pray that you'd grant us compassion for the lost and courage to speak and to proclaim Christ's law that leaves us condemned, but also your grace in Christ, your goodness to sinners, to all who believe in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for revealing this good news to us in your kindness. Pray that it would comfort us and strengthen us now and as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.